Open your Bibles with me once more to the Gospel of John. As I watched the football games over the holiday season, I saw a couple of interesting commercials uh, that were played a number of, of times. It was, a, it was a commercial that was shot in black and white, dramatic photos, uh, with, pic with pictures, just pictures, showing some that we might consider to be down or outers, down and outers, or perhaps the least of these. The commercial builds to a, a final black screen with the words, he gets us. And then those words fade to the name of Jesus. I don't know anything about the group who put those commercials out. I'm not endorsing that group or necessarily what they what they teach, their interpretation of Jesus. But this commercial is fascinating, and it trades on a truth that is close to the heart of the Christian faith. The author of Hebrews put it this way, for he himself has suffered when tempted. Because he himself suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. He says it again, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. When Jesus emptied himself by being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, Philippians 2, he felt the way that we feel. He smelled, he tasted, he saw, he heard. Now, that's easy enough to understand. But his soul moved with passions and affections just as ours do. John Calvin eloquently wrote, The Son of God, having clothed himself with our flesh, of his own accord clothed himself also with human feelings, so that he did not differ at all from his brethren, sin only accepted. And that idea has both troubled and encouraged Christians and comforted Christians for 2,000 years now. It's troubled Christians because when our souls move in love or hate, jealousy or pride, joy or sorrow, depression or elation, we understand how easily it is for us to fall into sin in those passions and affections. In fact, we scarcely imagine what it is to, to hate or to be proud or jealous without sinning. And yet it has comforted Christians to know that Jesus' soul was moved with passions and affections just as ours. Because it reminds us that he gets us. It reminds us that we have a sympathetic high priest. Someone who can intercede on our behalf before the Father precisely because he sympathizes with our weaknesses. He comforts us. And it comforts us to know that he gets us. A few weeks ago, I was reading the actual temptation of Jesus there in Luke chapter 4. And as I read, the thought struck me how, how empty Luke chapter 4 is of emotion. If you read the text, all it says is Satan said this and tempted Jesus and Jesus answered this. And then Satan said this and Jesus said that. And Satan said this and, and Jesus said that. And there's nothing in the text that tells us how Jesus felt as he went through that temptation. And yet our text here in John 11 is very clear. 
in its description of how Jesus felt. Our text this morning here in John chapter 11 is perhaps one of the largest windows into the soul of Jesus that we have in Scripture. This morning we are going to consider the passionate glory of Jesus. And we'll receive the comfort from the Holy Spirit as we are reminded that he gets us. Just as a reminder, this is a story of the resurrection of Lazarus. This is the seventh and climactic of the seven signs in the Gospel of John. This story, as it were, puts a bow on the ministry of Jesus, demonstrating that the glory of God was revealed to us in Jesus. And so everything in this story, from the beginning of the story to the end, is carefully told to draw our attention to the manifold, multifaceted glory of God revealed in Jesus. And we're just looking at this one part of the story this morning in John 11, verses 28 through 37. John 11, verses 28 through 37 says, When she said this, it is Martha, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? In this text this morning, the passions and the affections of Jesus are on clear display and they show us a glorious Messiah. But let's remember how it is that we got here to this part of the story. Verse 28 begins with these words, when she had said this. The she is Martha, who had just professed her faith in Jesus as the Messiah and the Son of God. We were introduced to Mary, Martha, and Lazarus earlier in the chapter. In verse number 5, John chapter 11, in verse number 5, we read, Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Now when we consider the inner life of Jesus, the, the soul of Jesus as it were, we realize this whole story is framed by Jesus' love for Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. This affection of love we could describe as, as a personal commitment for the good and the flourishing of another. A personal commitment for the good and the flourishing of another. Love is not just a, a warm, fuzzy feeling. It is a dedication to do what is best for someone else. It is a long-term commitment to see someone else flourish in their life. Now, when the text says that Jesus loved Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, it describes a love of personal sacrifice and commitment for their good. But the demonstration of love 
looks a lot different in our lives than it does in Jesus. We saw that a couple of weeks ago. We, we, we read verses 5 and 6 together, and, and they tell us Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. The love of Jesus compelled him to stay two days longer in the place where he was. The love of Jesus for Mary and for Martha and for Lazarus compelled Jesus to allow Lazarus to die. The love of Jesus for Mary and Martha and Lazarus compelled Jesus to allow Mary and Martha to pass through the grief of, the, of suffering the loss of their brother's death. And when you and I hear those words, they appear rather abhorrent to us, don't they? That's, that's love? That's not what love looks like. We, we might be tempted to make this kind of an evaluation. If Jesus had loved them, Jesus would have kept them from suffering Jesus would not have permitted it. Jesus' behavior we could even see as being cruel in this moment. If you can fix the pain, then you fix the pain. If you can do something and you just stand idly by, you are evil. And so we get a glimpse into the truth that God's love for us looks a little bit different than our love. Jesus doesn't always do what we think that he should do. And there are at least two reasons for that. First of all, Jesus is not concerned with your physical well-being. Jesus is, in fact, working so that you flourish all the way down to your soul. Jesus, to put it really bluntly, Jesus says this, What benefit is it to you if you gain the whole world and lose your soul? It is better for you, Jesus says, to lose a hand or a foot or an eye than for your whole body to go down into hell. So Jesus is not, first of all, concerned with helping you avoid physical discomforts. He's caring for your soul. He wants your soul to flourish in relationship with God. And this leads us to a second reason why the love of Jesus looks so different than what we expect. And it's because Jesus plays the long game. He's working for long-term purposes. Just looking at this one story, in this short story of Lazarus, it took at least a week for all of these events to pan out. From the time that, that Lazarus got sick and Mary and Martha sent for Jesus to the time when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, we're looking at a time frame of at least a week. Jesus isn't working on your timetable. He loves you. And his commitment for your good, for your flourishing may be years in the making. Jesus' love is a commitment over the long haul. Jesus loves. Jesus cares. Jesus loves you. And this means that Jesus is committed to see you flourish. Not just scoot through life with as little discomfort as possible. John 11 is showing us the glory of God in Jesus in how he loves and this is a love which we ought to embrace and we ought to trust. And this is a love that we ought to submit ourselves to. And it's a love which we ought to model ourselves in our own lives. You know, so often the people around us, the people who we love in our lives, they come to us in moments of crisis and they want us to come and to fix their pain and their, and their decision, their poor decision making. Remember that 
undo button that we talked about last week. Just make it all go away. Perhaps a son or a daughter made a foolish decision and now they want help getting out of their bind. Bail them out of the situation. Or maybe a fellow Albionite is looking for a handout. Or anything between those extremes. And we feel like we ought to do something. We, we ought to do something to help in this moment. What do we do? What would Jesus do? Well, believe it or not, Jesus wouldn't necessarily heal them. Jesus wouldn't necessarily give them money or fix their problem. But he would care for their soul. How can you care for the souls of your loved ones, your friends, and your family? How can you encourage them to trust in a sovereign God who loves them? How can you help them embrace difficult circumstances for the glory of God? The love of Jesus just plain looks different than our love. And this brings us back to our text. The, the love of God is something we see uh, permeating through this text and, and, and coming back to our text here in, in verses 28 through 37. We see particularly in verses 32, 33, notice with me the passion of the anger of our Jesus. Verses 32 to 33. Now when Mary had come to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Our text is full of the sorrow of death. The Jews are there consoling Mary. They thought she was going to the tomb to weep. And so she in fact comes to Jesus and she falls on her, her face at Jesus' feet weeping, the text says. Jesus saw her weeping. Jesus saw the Jews weeping. Do you hear the, the grief that is in this moment? Now you can almost feel the sorrow that is just permeating this whole text. And imagine Jesus standing there. Jesus has just affirmed to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Jesus is not just living Jesus is the source of life itself. And here he is, surrounded by the grief of death. Death. This unnatural and yet entirely normal curse which God has put on this earth. This enemy of the good creation of God is just shredding the village of Bethany with grief. And Jesus, the text tells us, Jesus is deeply moved. What would happen? What would happen if you walked through the town of your childhood to see it just ripped into shreds from the impact of bombs and missiles? How would you describe the movement of your soul if, as you walked past your school of childhood, you heard the cries of Mothers who had found their children's bodies. What would you call that passion in your soul if you encountered the one guilty of such destruction and devastation? Is it displeasure? Anger? Is it sorrow? Is it hate? Jesus was deeply moved. This is not mere sorrow. 
This is not mere sympathy. This is the passion of profound anger and displeasure toward the enemy of his good creation. Surely you and I experience the smallest part of that passion as we stand at the casket of a loved one. Surely you have felt that anger and hatred toward the bitter enemy of God. Surely you have felt that grief of isolation as death takes a loved one from you, one whom you love so dearly. Jesus was deeply moved. But consider these words. He was deeply moved in his spirit. Consider your wrath. Consider your anger. How often do you allow your indignation, your anger, your grief to spill over into uncontrolled sorrow? John Calvin observed that our feelings rush on without restraint and suffer no limit. He observed that no person rejoices or grieves so far only as is sufficient or as God permits. He says that there are even some who shake themselves loose from all restraint. This is often how our souls respond in a moment of grief, isn't it? We often shake ourselves loose of all restraint and entirely give ourselves over to grief, sorrow, anger, indignation. And yet Jesus was deeply moved in his spirit. The giver of life was angered at the violence of death. It displeased him, the carnage that was left behind by his enemy, death. He was deeply moved. And yet, if I can put it this way, his emotions were always entirely under his control. He was deeply moved in his spirit. He did not allow himself to be dominated or to be controlled by his anger and his outrage. He did not give himself over to his grief or his hatred. He was moved in his spirit. Do you see the glory of the passions and the affections of Jesus? He is rightly outraged by that which offends the dignity of the giver of life. He is outraged by the terror of death inflicted upon his creation. His response is perfectly proportionate to the grief which he sees around him. Jesus is deeply moved. And yet that movement of his soul is always under his control. He does not give himself over to anger or to rage. He does not lash out uncontrollably in wrath. He is deeply moved in his spirit. His emotions are entirely under his control. And we're thinking so deeply about these words because they teach us something important, not only about the glory of Jesus, but they also teach us something important about how we ought to feel. It is right to feel deeply. Christianity is not a religion of emotionless stoicism. We don't walk around with fake grins on our faces pretending that everything is always okay. 
Being sorrowful or grieving is not a weakness. Being angry is not necessarily sinful. Jesus glorified God even when he was deeply moved in his spirit. Which means that you too can glorify God when you are deeply moved in your spirit. The example of Jesus in this moment is not to pretend that we have no feelings. Nor is the example of Jesus in this moment to simply give himself over to his feelings. No, no, no. God gave you passions and affections. He intends for you to be deeply moved by certain things. But we err, we sin, when we do not control the movement of our souls. We sin when we shake off all restraint and give ourselves over to our passions. Jesus in this moment teaches us how we ought to feel as humans. He shows us what it means to be human and how to feel. He teaches us how to be angry. And he teaches us how to grieve. Notice, thirdly, the passion of grief. In Jesus, we see the glory of God in the affection of love. We see the glory of God in the passion of anger. And finally, we see the glory of God through Jesus in the passion of grief. The shortest verse in the whole Bible, you learned it as a little child, says, Jesus wept. Two simple words. And yet even in these two simple words, we see the control of the emotions of Jesus. I don't say that we, say we see restraint. The point in this, in this phrase is not restraint. The point is control. It's interesting, John has been drawing our attention to the weeping of everybody. Everybody is weeping. The Mary is weeping and Martha is weeping. The Jews are weeping along with her. There are even professional paid weepers who are weeping with the weeping women. And throughout this passage, John uses this word weep over and over and over again. Yet he comes to verse 35. And he describes Jesus. And he actually uses a different word for weep. It's not a word that indicates that everyone else is weeping, but Jesus just cried. No, that's, that's not the point. Jesus wept. Now, it is true that just because John uses a different word once in a while doesn't mean that John means something different by it necessarily. There, John's a good writer. He can use some variety in his, in his language. He is a good writer. He, he incorporates some variety, and we'll see some of that later on even in this gospel. But in this case, in this case, there's something different going on. This is actually the only time in the whole Bible that this word weep is used. It's a different word than what he had just used to describe Mary and Martha and all the other people. And so I suspect that John is trying to make a point by using this unusual word for weep right here. And I think that the point that John is trying to make is that Jesus wept. He didn't despair. He didn't wail. He didn't bawl. He didn't give himself over to grief and let it overwhelm him as surely it was overwhelming some of the people who were even standing there. He wept. Jesus wept because he was moved 
deeply by the destructive forces of sin and death. His greatest enemy is having a field day all around him, and he is grieved. He doesn't grieve because he misses Lazarus. The Jews actually miss the point when they say, see how he loved him. The point isn't that Jesus misses Lazarus. He's going to see Lazarus in just a few minutes. He grieves because death is terrible. And death tears apart the lives of those whom he loves. Jesus wept. John Calvin once more, this, John Calvin is just masterful when he was working through this text. And he says, before granting deliverance or aid by the groaning of his spirit, by a strong feeling of grief and by tears, he shows that he is as much affected by our distresses as if he had personally endured them in his own person. Have you ever wept in grief at the terrible work of death? Have you suffered in sorrow because the enemy that we call death has struck once more? Jesus knows. Jesus wept. Brothers and sisters, Jesus suffered grief. He suffered the grief of death. He knows what it is to be moved deeply by the destructive, unnatural work of death, tearing apart the hearts of those whom he loved. He knows. And because he knows, he comforts. But brothers and sisters, he doesn't comfort you by merely patting you on the head and assuring you that it's all going to be okay. No, no, no. He comforts you by dying on a cross and rising again. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. This table that is spread before us this morning is given by Jesus to comfort your soul. It is okay to grieve. It is okay to mourn. It is not weakness to grieve. But as you grieve, listen to the promise of Jesus. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? Jesus promises you life. That's how he comforts you. He tells you, I know the grief of death. I have felt that grief myself and I conquered death. He knows the grief that you feel. And he did something about it. He destroyed that enemy. And though that enemy still rages, though it still tears at families and tears our own hearts, our souls stand firm on the promise, I am the resurrection and the life. So don't despair. Don't wail. You can mourn, you can grieve, and you should but don't give yourself over to that passion. There's another master that you serve. You do not serve the master of your emotions. You do not serve the master of death. Sadness is not the Lord of your life. Grief is not your master. No, your master conquered death. Your master is the source of eternal 
joy. Your master has given you his peace that he purchased in his body on the cross. Your master has promised that he conquered death. So as you mourn, as you lament, do so with hope. You be the master of your passions. You control the movement of your soul to the glory of God. Before God, demonstrate your faith in him as you submit the movement of your soul to his spirit, even in those deepest, most profound and painful movements of your soul. Don't despair. Brothers and sisters, when you look to Jesus, see a Jesus who loves you. He loves you not with some short-sighted kind of love, not with a love that never wants you to experience difficulty or an ounce of inconvenience. No, he loves you with a love that is absolutely committed to the thriving of your soul. Which means that because he loves you, he may wait two extra days before he shows up. So trust in his love. And don't just trust in his love yourself. Love others with that love. Love as he loves. Don't just give the people around you what you think that they might want just because they want it. Consider their soul. Consider how their soul can thrive for the glory of God. When you look to Jesus, when you see Jesus, see a Jesus who was angered and displeased at the violent destruction of death. Don't look to a stoic Jesus, a Jesus who felt nothing and who really can't sympathize with you because that's not the Jesus who walked 2,000 years ago. That's not the Jesus who intercedes for you before the Father. No, the Jesus of Scripture was not a stoic. He was deeply moved in his spirit. He was disgusted by the terrorism of sin and death. And so when you look to Jesus, you see a Jesus who was angered and disturbed by sin. Remember, this Jesus was always in control of his emotions. He was deeply moved in his spirit. And this is an example to you and me of how we too ought to feel. Passions and affections are good gifts of God. But we misuse those gifts and we sin against God when we are ruled by our passions and our affections. We ought not to be given over to sadness and grief and hatred. We must not be controlled by our passions. Rather, like Jesus, we ought to be moved, yet remain in control of the movement of our soul. It's okay to weep. It's okay to mourn. Jesus wept. Again, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who was in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. This same high priest who is able to sympathize with us in our weaknesses precisely because he experienced the same movements of his soul that we experience he experienced that deep and profound and painful movement of his soul. This high priest is the one who intercedes before the Father on our behalf. And so we say with David, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil 
for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. When you feel as though you would be overrun by your emotions, when you feel that your sorrow and your anger is going to overwhelm you, run to Jesus. Pray to Jesus. Pour out your heart to this Jesus. And instead of being driven by your emotions, instead of being ruled by your passions, instead, trust your master, trust your king, the king who loves you. He has felt your sorrow and your anger. He has been deeply moved by sadness. And then he conquered the enemy of sin and death. Because he has conquered your enemies, you can trust him in your pain. You can rejoice in his victory. You can hope in his life. Father, I thank you for these words. I thank you for this text that reminds us of 